0: Let Them Go, by Alexander Shaw Where the waves of moonlight glosses The dim grey sands with light Far off by furthest rosses We foot it all the night Weaving olden dances Mingling hands and mingling glances Till the moon has taken flight To and fro we leap And chase the frothy bubbles While the world is full of troubles And is anxious in its sleep Come away, O human child To the waters and the wild With a fairy hand in hand For the world's more full of weeping Than you can understand From The Stolen Child By William Butler Yeats Prologue. The man with clothing in disarray runs for his life, but she is moving faster, and the space between them is closing. William Smythe wears trousers of twill, he has never run in them, and their tailored cut pinches at his flesh. His fine leather shoes, built for traversing the streets of English cities, are already plastered in the dirt of the fields. His grey waistcoat and ivory cotton shirt are soaked with sweat and cling to him like overgrowths of hanging vines, constricting his breathing. Blood coats his sleeve from elbow to wrist, black in the moonlight. His necktie is undone and flailing, a ship's flag in the midst of a typhoon. His hat and coat are gone and if he stops running for a moment, he will get an inkling of just how cold it is out here. His lungs burn in agony as he gasps steam into the night. The fields are separated by high, uncultivated hedgerows. Scrambling over a stile, William catches his pocket on a trailing spur of branch. (gasps) He curses the farmer for not clearing the footpath as the fabric of his trousers rips apart, exposing his thigh. There is no time to attend to it, He cannot stop running, or even slow down. Just minutes ago, he had been heading for home along a safe country road. His business in Plymouth satisfactorily concluded. The amber light from the hanging lantern of his pony and trap had fallen upon a figure crouched in the road. You there, out of the way! He had called, and he had been perfectly rational in doing so. The next field is even darker than the last, but William has an idea that the road is nearby. If he can get back there, he might find another human being, even at this hour, travelling down to the village, or perhaps the callous farmer who owns these wild acres. He dashes across the long grass and into the rustling copse at the eastern end of the field, crossing a small bridge over a stream. For a half second, he considers veering off course through the shallow water to throw what is behind him off the scent, but he cannot see where the stream comes from or where it goes and imagines how loose his footing will be, down among the weeds. Instead, he powers on across the bridge and through the wood, finding the trail and heading for what he hopes is the distant sound of hooves on stone. The trees loom overhead, but no birdsong can be heard at this hour, not even from the nightingale.
1: Are you injured?
0: He had inquired. The form had been female, and she had moved away from the light, but still blocked his path. She had neither risen to stand straight, nor yet spoken. Another few yards and he could steer around her. That was when the sounds came forth, rasping, hissing, guttural, savage. (sighs) William decides he will double back down the road once it is reached and attempt to find his pony and trap. The beast had bolted for its life, the same as he, and took with it the clattering cart. Still, it might yet be found wandering in the dark, a better hope than any other, or perhaps he could turn about and retrace his steps. Before he can decide on this change of direction, he hears across the field behind him the scuffle of bare hands and feet upon the stile, the light thump of a body springing down to the earth, and the noise she was making in her throat before that so chilled his blood. He runs harder through the forest, half blinded with fear. The surroundings are a dizzying scatter of moonlight upon trunks and leaves. The ground between them is simple to navigate, and a matter of only moments to cross for one traveling at speed. It will not be long before he meets her again. William Smythe searches frantically for a place to hide.
1: Miss, I do not know if you are drunken or ill, but I cannot help you and I have nothing for you.
0: He had not yet finished saying this when the woman attacked him. He hears the sound of bare feet padding across the uneven wooden boards of the bridge, and feverishly quickens his pace, only to sink up to his ankles into the soft, dark, hoof-printed mud spanning the pathway. The sudden loss of traction has him lurching forwards and back to stay aloft. Fighting his way out of the mire, the cold, slick muck reaching up to the backs of his knees, he can see down the sloping track of the hill he is on, all the way into another field. This one seems vaguely familiar, and he is now sure a road he has been down runs alongside it. He knows better where he is. He can escape this. The woman's fingernails are torn through his sleeve. Her dress had been ripped and her underclothes were showing. He did not know in that moment why this disturbed him more than the assault. Then he saw her orange eyes in the careering lamplight. And that was when the horse's screaming reached its frenzied peak. (coughs) The animal bucked and threw him from the trap, tumbling down to the hard ground, a snarl behind him in the wood. Here! He had shouted, reaching for his wallet as he stood.
1: Here is ten pounds. It is yours if you will, but leave me be.
0: Again, he had not been able to finish. She had leapt upon him from the shadow, pulling at his coat with jarring strength. They had rolled over and over and he had untangled himself and broken free, rushing off the road and down a lane that he had hoped would lead to somebody's house. It had not In desperation, William launches himself up, recalling his days at Eton and the triple-jump bronze he had taken home. Pounding his feet against the ground, accessing dormant muscle memory, he gains enough height to grip at the overhanging bough of a horse chestnut tree and bicycles his legs up to climb on. His feet are slippery with mud, so he crosses and locks his ankles, bracing his weight. Hanging upside down like this cannot last but perhaps he can get a moment to rest his muscles and plan his next move. If luck is with him, she will cross under his position and press on into the neighbouring fields. With enough stamina and patience, he can negotiate his way up into the tree itself, wait until dawn, and backtrack along the route which leads to the road. In a moment of brief absurdity, he spots the green spiked hulls of conkers dangling from his tree, and again school and all its tribulations and achievements enters his thoughts. She is nearer now. William closes his eyes as he hears her approach. Thankfully his coat is long gone or it would be hanging down, impossible to miss. He listens as she passes swiftly underneath. There is a scraping and a crackling as she moves off, and then nothing. The branch he is gripping begins ever so slightly to bow and give. He prays it will hold his weight. All is still as he slowly breathes out. What could possess a woman to act in such an abominable manner? He opens his eyes and finds himself staring up into her terrible face, just centimetres above him. A warm spot of her saliva drops onto his cheek. The sledgehammer blow of shock hits him and William's fingers give out. He lets go and falls, ice in his veins as she appears to ascend. He crashes down to the dirt as the wind leaves his lungs. That is when she lands on top of him. His screams peel around the darkened wood. He will be found in the morning. Swelteringly hot afternoon in Bombay, October 1872, a telegram was brought to Charles Wolverton as he sat at his desk, ensconced in papers. It was just one of the seventy notifications he had received that year alone, but this one in particular would change the course of many lives. Charles was dressed in cream flannel and was sweating profusely in the heat. The beaded condensation on his tall gin and tonic slowly slid down the smooth outside of the glass, the thick yellow lemon slice inside beginning to submerge. Charles examined the telegram a second and third time, searching for some kind of misconstrued information. However, there weren't many other ways you could read.
1: Wolverton, stop. Deal gone south, stop. No more diamonds found in Kalur stop. Outbreak of Egyptian rabies, stop. Uprising in Golconda, stop Too disruptive, stop No sign of stopping, stop Have to pull out too, stop Best leave the country, old sport, stop Sorry, stop Carruthers, stop
0: Euston, a Welsh corgi, stirred from his panting half slumber in the shady corner and padded over to his master to lick the droplets from the fingers of his lowered left hand Charles passed the message between the shafts of sunlight, pushing through the latticed wooden windows, his shoulders slumping as he absently ruffled the fur around Euston's collar. He put the telegram down, slid two clean sheets of paper in front of him, picked up his pen and set to work. He rang a small brass bell twice, and then handed an envelope to one serving boy and Euston's leash to the other. Now alone, Charles finished his drink, grimacing at the sour aftertaste. He retrieved the Beaumont Adams revolver from his desk drawer, and, his whole body trembling under a wave of freezing cold defeat, placed it to his temple. Three days later.
2: Mr. Galloway,
0: said Rebecca, tilting her head to regard him with large, brown, expressive eyes over the top of her horn-rimmed spectacles.
2: What do you see before you? Two
1: ladies.
0: Rebecca glanced sideways at her younger sister, Amanda.
2: But what do you see behind us?
0: The fancy gentleman squinted and peered at the blank expanse of wall a few feet away. A wall.
2: Correct, Mr Galloway. It is indeed a wall for the moment.
0: Said Rebecca, moving over to the plastered edifice to rap on it with her knuckles.
2: But I see a gateway. A passage between two places. People will be able to walk from one to the other as easily as I am doing right now.
0: Galloway frowned with irritation. She needed to get to the point quickly.
2: From here in Havisham's, established over forty years, started by our grandparents. They were equal partners, even back then,
1: Amanda put in.
2: To your shop, located in the empty building next door which you so shrewdly purchased this week.
1: They can leave by that door there and walk the short distance to my premises via the street, said Galloway.
2: Of course they can. But the fact that they don't have to will leave them more disposed to shop in both places,
3: which would be unified.
0: There was a pause. Amanda took a step forward.
3: Do you know what a symbiotic relationship is, Mr. Galloway? Enlighten me. The remora fish, found in tropical waters, will hitch a ride on a shark.
1: Hitch a ride?
3: It attaches itself just under the chin and along the belly. This helpful little fish cleans the shark's mouth in exchange for the great sea beast's protection and transport. The shark is happy. The remora is happy.
1: It sounds an awful lot like a parasite, an organism that feeds off its host and manipulates it.
3: Remora actually dispose of the parasites that would otherwise plague the shark. It's a relationship based on...
0: Young lady! Galloway interrupted, and Rebecca's heart sank. She had heard
1: sentences that began that way, and they never ended well. I have read Mr. Darwin and his tales of evolution.
3: But symbiosis defies Darwinian thinking. And
1: I agree most strongly with his statements on survival of the fittest. Galloway was puffing himself up now. I suspect you are aware that I will be setting up premises similar to your own next door and making use of the considerable additional floor space. I can't see this deal, if it can be called such a thing, as any more than an attempt to snatch crumbs from my table.
2: Oh, but sir, you are not considering the greater opportunities that can be offered by marrying this small and unassuming enterprise to your own. For one thing, our long-standing place in the community will imbue your brand-new establishment a measure of public trust which might take years to acquire elsewise. For another, I have not made clear our grander plan.
0: Rebecca paced to the window and gestured at the people outside, hurrying through the autumn drizzle.
2: Two shops combined is nothing new. We are planning to expand far beyond the simple offering of household and dry goods and into tailoring, leatherworking, shoemaking and seamstressing here. I envision a vast interconnected network of stores, all working together to offer people a place to acquire everything they would need throughout the year. Not simply in adjoining buildings, but in multi-storied and dedicated centres of commerce. This is just the next step towards realising that. We would like Not merely to bolt our shop to yours, but to move forward into establishing an indoor revolution in commerce.
0: She finished this with a flourish and stood in polite, proud expectation of a positive response. Galloway twisted his moustache, and behind him, Amanda gave her sister
1: the thumbs up. You are very impressive in your goals, Miss Wolverton, Mrs. Culver. I shall admit I am interested in seeing how you expect them to function. But may I ask you one question? Absolutely. The owner of this shop is apparently a Mr. Charles Wolverton?
2: Our father.
1: May I speak with him?
2: He is attending to his interests in Bombay, sir.
1: What interests, may I ask? The women glanced at each other.
2: He has a significant stake in a mining company, and others in various
3: tea plantations. And he part-owns a hotel, Watson's Esplanade. Do you know it, sir? Sir?
1: India. Nasty stuff going on there right now. Same as a lot of those places. That's why I'm doing my business here in England.
2: I've heard only that they have things under control. Diseases and civil unrest are not strange new occurrences, and trade will return to normal once this plays itself out. Our father has only ever had a sensible head on his shoulders about such things.
1: And how does he feel about these ideas of yours?
2: We have exchanged words on my long-term plans, and he at least accedes that such endeavours are feasible, with the wheel of progress turning ever faster, such as it is.
0: Rebecca said, omitting everything troubling that had transpired during these altercations.
1: And on this deal in particular?
2: We are still waiting for his confirmation. However, we have asked for his permission to advance it via telegram, and are expecting his reply any day.
1: So you don't have legal authority yet?
2: Not... As such, however... Then
1: why am I here?
2: We thought it prudent to make our offer as soon as we could secure a moment with you. And if
1: your father's response is in the negative?
2: Sir, if you are interested in moving forwards, we can negotiate with him, I am sure.
0: But Rebecca was interrupted by a knock at the door. A telegram delivery boy stood to attention behind the glass.
2: Message from India,
0: madam, said the young lad as the front door was opened up.
2: And isn't that a stroke of luck?
0: It is indeed. Rebecca slid out the printed page and read to herself.
3: Did he say yes?
0: Amanda asked. Her older sister's face fell.
2: It's not from our father. It's from an associate of his.
0: She gazed at Amanda for a long while.
2: Father is dead. What?
0: Amanda gasped, steadying herself on the countertop.
2: More information to follow in letters. Mr. Galloway, it seems we must continue this discussion at a later date.
1: My condolences to you both. By all means, once you are the official executors of these premises, you may contact me and arrange an additional meeting. In the meantime, I must bid you ladies good day. And with that, he left them alone.
3: Probably shouldn't have mentioned the Remora analogy.
0: murmured Amanda. Rebecca nodded. They stood for a while in shock, processing this sudden turn in their fortunes.
3: On the bright side, we need never ask Father's permission for anything, now that we own this place.
2: If we own this place...
0: Have been listening to the New Century Multiverse. Let Them Go. Episode 1 The Messages. Written, narrated, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Rebecca Wolverton, performed by Sharon Shaw. Amanda Culver, performed by Theo Lee. William Smythe and Mr. Galloway, performed by Matt Wardle. Carruthers. Performed by James Batchelor. And Delivery Boy, performed by Pascal Dooley. Blacklight, composed by Ross Bugden. All other music, including Satiate, Stormfront, and Cambodian Odyssey, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. The production of New Century is funded by you guys on Patreon. And our special $15 sponsors get name checked each week, so a huge extra thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, James Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Yungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, and Lorraine Chisham. And this show hasn't had an iTunes review since early 2017 on the USA store and late 2016 in the UK store. So if you enjoyed the beginning of this new series, maybe jump on there and tell the world that you're excited to see where we're going. Let Them Go will run for 15 weeks, and then Tiger's Eye will conclude, followed by the long-awaited return of Steamheart as we push on through to the end of Phase 1. It's been a hell of a ride so far, and I am personally thrilled to be back recording new material with these amazing people. We shall see you next week when we journey back to the childhood of our new heroes.